Thank you, Tim, for that prayer of supplication. And thank each and every one of you for being here this morning. I uh, don't take for granted when people show up at church. I just appreciate the fact that you have a desire in your heart to be with fellow Christians, to share in Bible study, which we have in our Christian growth group earlier, and now to just be together. It's something about joining with fellow believers, uh, fellow church members to to pray and lift up the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and, and then to also share in hearing his word proclaimed. And so I think I have some outlines heading out there. I think my helpers are uh, ready to go into action. Uh, this is not free child labor. I'm sure I'll be paying dearly at Dairy Queen uh, somehow and reimbursing. But as they make their way across, they have uh, outlines that may help you as you uh, study, uh, as you follow along in the message. You can go ahead and turn in your, in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke. We've been walking through the Gospel of Luke for some time now, and, uh, and God has been speaking to us. It's been such a pleasure to have the elder team joining me in uh, expounding on this uh, wonderful, wonderful text and, and Gospel. And so if you have your Bibles, I invite you uh, to turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19. We're going to resume uh, about where we left off last week. And so as, as you're getting your copy of that outline, just to kind of help you, it, it has some of the main points that I'll touch on. And then also, it'll also have scripture references that you can go back and look up that I'll make mention of as we go along in, in the sermon today. You know, there are certain traumatic events in history that have a way of just etching their, their way on our, uh, on our minds carving them, their, their presence on our minds. Some things that happen in, in, in life and in history, we, we just don't forget. You know, I, I mentioned, for example, September the 11th, 2001. Those of you who were around, tuned in, you know, you'll never forget, you know, how the terrorist attacks on the World Trade Center and the Pentagon and, and the impact that left on us for some, it'll be that chilly January morning, January 28th, 1986, when the space shuttle Challenger lifted off from the, uh, the launch pad there at uh, Cape Canaveral and, and, and then there shortly thereafter uh, exploded. It took the lives of all the crew on board that day. Those, those kinds of events. You know, there, there was one event going further back in history, dated myself now, uh, November the 22nd. 1963. I was the same age as my grandson, Asher. It was a, uh, I can still remember it. It's, it's on my mind that day. Uh, we were going through what appeared to be just a, another normal school day when abruptly over the school's archaic PA system came the familiar voice of our principal. Obviously, though, somewhat shaken. And he informed us that earlier that afternoon, shortly afternoon, our president of the United States, John F. Kennedy, had been brutally assassinated while in a motorcade parade in Dallas, Texas. I can still remember standing in the hallway at the school and a teacher bursting out of her classroom, sobbing deeply. 
You see, President Kennedy and his entourage had made their way to Dallas that day because they were in an effort to try to, to, to bring on board the state of Texas as he looked ahead to the 1964 election. And so that was, that was the goal. And from all indications from the large crowd that turned out, because there was some, some who thought maybe this would not be a good move, that, that there wasn't a lot of favoritism or, or towards him and, and uh, a, a support for him. But, but President Kennedy and, and Mrs. Kennedy were riding in a, in a limousine uh, convertible and, and just they were seated in the back seat and just in front of them was Texas Governor Conley and, uh, and his wife. And then as they were turning a sharp curve going down Main Street, they're about uh, Healy Tower or that in that area or uh, the, the, the motorcade slowed down. And then there were two shots that rang out very clearly. And at one o'clock that afternoon, shortly thereafter at Parkland Hospital, the announcement came that President Kennedy was dead. Suddenly what was a, it started out to be such a cheerful and exciting moment was tragically transformed into one of America's darkest moments that made a deep impact on my life and the, life, and the lives of so many, so many. Because unbeknownst to anybody, there in that, that Texas school book depository building right across the street from that sharp curve where the motorcade had to slow down was Lee Harvey Oswald with a high-powered rifle and a scoop. And he changed the course of the nation. In our text this morning, as we look at chapter 19, and this is following up on the message that Pastor Scott preached last Sunday. And, and we'll look briefly back at a portion of that message, and I promise I won't attempt to re-preach it because he did such a wonderful job and a thorough job in covering that. But, but as we consider Jesus' triumphal entrance into Jerusalem, we notice a similar dynamics here in, the, in this, compared to the tragic story with President Kennedy. An event that looked so positive and looked so, so joyous, there was a tragic twist that occurred there in Jerusalem as, as the Lord was, was making his way into that, that famous city of David, Jerusalem. And, and so from all appearances, this triumphal entrance of Jesus into Jerusalem had the, the, the makings of being one of Jerusalem's and Israel's finest days. And however, as the drama unfolds, turns out to be a horrible and a dark moment for the nation of Israel and for the city of Jerusalem. But let me make, make as I draw a comparison and contrast, if you will, contrast in the story of President Kennedy's assassination and looking at the story of the Lord Jesus, let me make it very clear. Mr. Kennedy had no foreknowledge of the tragedy that awaited him in Dallas that day. Nor did he or any human being have any control over it save for Lee Harvey Oswald. In contrast, in stark contrast, our Lord Jesus Christ, God incarnate, he knew exactly what lay ahead for him, not just that day, but that week 
that despite the celebratory nature of the triumphal entry into Jerusalem that day, he knew that at the end of that week, he would be crucified. He knew that. Not only did he have that omniscient foreknowledge, but he also omnipotently was in absolute control. And yet he moved forward. Let me make it very clear again in stark contrast to the story, the tragic story of the assassination of President Kennedy. Jesus Christ was not a victim. He was a victor every step of the way. And so as we as we give attention to the text, I want to and just briefly, briefly looking back at, at a portion of the message that Pastor Scott brought last week. I want us first to see the Messiah's humble presentation. I, I think that's important for the rest of the message that we just go back and just recapture that moment. And, and so Pastor Scott showed us in, in Luke 19, verses 28 through 40, in the text that he preached and, and he re referred to in the prayer of confession this morning, he showed us how the Lord in his triumphal entrance into Jer Jerusalem demonstrated his, the, the power and the recognition and the mission of God's promised king. There is no doubt he fulfilled every aspect of that role as the coming king. So notice again what we saw. For instance, his disciples' obedient preparation in verses 30 through 35, there in chapter 19. Jesus, demonstrating his prophetic powers, knew exactly where there would be not only a donkey, but he also knew that there would be a foal, a colt of that donkey. He knew exactly where it was because he told his disciples. So he demonstrated his, his omniscience and not only telling them where they would find the colt, but he would also be able to give them instructions on what to say when the owner of the colt would say, what are you doing? And they would say, the master has use of this. So Jesus' disciples recognize that and they demonstrate obedience as Jesus demonstrates his omniscience and his omnipotence in that moment. You know, I think sometimes I have overlooked the significance of Jesus riding a, a, a donkey, a, not only a donkey, but, but the colt of a donkey into Jerusalem in his triumphal entry. Because in that time period in first century Palestine and under, under the, the domination of the Roman Empire, a victorious parade and, and a victorious general or, or leader who was riding into the city and, and people would be celebrating, that, 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 that powerful leader would be riding on a, on a great white horse. But here's Jesus riding on a humble donkey not only that, but, but the cult of a donkey. Absolutely fulfilling scripture, prophecy. As Pastor Scott pointed out in, in Zechariah 9, 9, he said, that's, that's what the prophet said. The Messiah would come into Jerusalem riding on the cult of a, of a donkey. I was talking to our cornerstone in-house uh, equestrian expert, uh, Sister Ellen Eitens. She's not here. She and her family are traveling today. Ellen loves horses. She's around horses. I grew up on a farm. I, 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 we had horses. I, I knew about horses. And, and, and 
though we didn't raise horses, you know, and train them and that type of thing. I, I knew enough that that it wasn't really smart to go and jump on the back of a colt. You might get your brains kicked out, or you might get get yourself thrown up into the top of a tree. I mean, you know, because the fact is, you know, a colt has not been trained, it's not been broken. And, and, and so, therefore, it just caught my attention, you know, and I asked Ellen, Ellen about that last Sunday. I said, you know, how likely would it be for somebody to just ride in on a colt? And she said, well, you know, it would have to be mature and then have to be broken. But, but not if the creator is riding. Hey, listen, folks, I'm convinced Jesus could have rode in on the back of a water buffalo if he wanted to. He created the animal. But, but just watching and seeing how absolutely important it was that Jesus fulfilled the details of the scripture and Pastor Scott pointed that out. So that sets the stage for this great triumphal entrance into Jerusalem. Let me, let me just share a passage of scripture because I was pointing out how the victorious you know, ruler and conqueror rides on a white horse. Listen to how John describes in the Revelation the second coming of Christ because what we're looking at is that Jesus' first coming and he's coming in humility. Don't forget, he's fulfilling the passages of Isaiah 53, talking about the suffering servant. But in Revelation, John sees this vision and he tells us of Jesus' second coming. And I'll read briefly out of chapter 19. John says, then I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true in righteousness. He judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except him. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he shall strike the nations. And he shall rule himself over them with a rod of iron. Oh, he will come on a white horse. That will be his second coming. But we're looking at his first coming. And in that triumphant, triumphal entry into Jerusalem, Jesus has presented himself as the humble Lamb of God who is coming to the world to give his life, to pay the price for the sins. Oh, listen, there was great celebration. As we look back in chapter 19, verse 36 through 40, we see the crowd that was gathered that day. As Jesus is coming up, you know, the, uh, by the Mount of Olives and he's, as he looks across at that majestic Mount Zion and the temple complex. Oh, what a massive and impressive, you know, uh, place that was. And, and the temple of God prominently displayed there in sight. And the excitement is just swelling as the crowds are throwing down their coats and, and some uh, uh, palm branches. And, and Jesus is riding this little donkey's coat as he's coming. And the people are cheering. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in earth and glory in the highest. You know, I think it's interesting as we look there, verse 37, then as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. One of the reasons they're rejoicing that they're so convinced that this is indeed the promised Messiah is because so many of them knew about and heard about his miraculous works. 
There was no denying that he possessed divine power. They'd seen Jesus uh, command the, the storms to cease. They'd seen the power and authority that he had over the natural elements. They'd seen Jesus work miracles of healing, healing the blind, the lame, uh, the mute, the deaf. And, and he, he had demonstrated his, uh, his powers in casting out demons out of people. He fed multitudes of people from what amounted to be just a takeout lunch. Oh, listen, they saw him raise the dead. And in fact, in John's Gospels, John is recounting the triumphal entrances of Christ in John chapter 12 and verses 17 and 18. He goes on to say that there were a number of those that were gathered, that multitude that was celebrating the entrance of the Messiah into Jerusalem. There were in that crowd many who had personally witnessed Jesus raise his friend Lazarus from the dead. Well, there was great reason for the multitude to have such such a, a tone of celebration and excitement. And yet celebrating, they were celebrating from their flawed expectations of what their Messiah would do. Like all the other Jews at that time, including Jesus' own disciples. They expected the long-awaited Messiah to attack the hated Roman garrisons, such as the, the one that was stationed there in Jerusalem at Fort Antonia, and, and it was poised right above the temple. They expected Jesus to just, just go in and totally overthrow that, that, uh, that garrison of Roman soldiers. Why, they wouldn't have been surprised if Jesus, uh, as the, their promised Messiah, would have gone straight to the palace of that evil Roman governor, Pilate, and ransacked his palace and thrown him out. Oh, listen, they would have been thoroughly happy and totally anticipated Jesus to rid their land once and for all of the dreaded pagan Romans. And of course, it's not what Jesus did. Because he was not, that was not his mission. As Pastor Scott pointed out at that point in his message, that was not the mission on which he came. And so now as we tune our Turn our attention to the text this morning in verse 41. We, we see a dramatic turning of the tide, the mood. Even in the midst of all the celebration as people are shouting and singing, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. We see a drastically different picture being painted here by Luke as he records what transpired next. And so I want to direct your attention to the second point of my message, and that is, well, actually the first point of my message, we just finished the summary of Pastor Scott's message. The first point, the Messiah's haunting prediction. In the midst of all the joy and the celebration, Jesus reacted with tears. In verse 41, chapter 19, we look at Jesus' tearful reaction, totally out of place. It says in verse 41, now as he drew near, he saw the city. And, and what? Cheered? Stood up in the saddle of the donkey and said, Jerusalem, victory, let's go. No. It says... And he wept over it. 
We saw in, in, in John's account in chapter 11, when Jesus came to the tomb of Lazarus, his friend who died and been in the grave four days, he saw the, the awful effects of grief on, on Mary and Martha, Lazarus' sisters. Oh, listen, he heard the mourners and, and, and the scriptures tell us, you know, Jesus wept. But that's weeping over the death and the effects of death on a dear friend. Jesus is weeping here, folks, in a way that 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 pales in comparison to. Because Jesus is looking at the city of Jerusalem and he understands what lies ahead. He understands how they have totally mistaken him for that victorious political military Messiah. And that's not who he is at that point. And Jesus wept. Now, this is not the first time in Luke's gospel where Jesus grieves over the city of Jerusalem. Back in chapter 13, and we don't have to go back there, but when Jesus was ministering in the region of Galilee and then into Perea, and he was getting ready to turn his attention. He knew that he was turning his attention and his ultimate destination would be Jerusalem. And, and there in chapter 13, when Jesus was considering the plight of Jerusalem, this is where he, he expressed lament over that city and listened to his words as G Jesus was thinking about Jerusalem and what lies ahead for them. He says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. Jesus is brokenhearted for what he knows lies ahead, not just for him, but for the city of Jerusalem and for the Jewish nation. And Jesus grieved over the city, but here that is expressed in absolute strong lament that is so incongruous with the triumphant mood of that parade going into the Jerusalem. The Lord wept. And Luke uses the strongest word in the Greek language to express as Jesus looked at the city and he foresaw what would lie ahead. He understood that they would be ultimately rejecting him. Jesus is weeping and the word that Luke chooses, like I said, the strongest word in the Greek language for weeping describes a deep and a gut level sobbing. And some of you know what that's like. To cry so hard that your gut actually hurts. And yet people are wildly cheering and celebrating. Not only do we see his tearful reaction. But we also see his chilling prophecy. As we read on in verse 42. While everybody else is joyous and uplifted and optimistic and, and thinking, you know, Happy days are here again. Jesus in verse 42 says, if you had known, even you, especially in this, your day, the Messiah was coming. Make no mistake about it. The Messiah was there, but not the Messiah. They were anticipating. If you just known that this, the Messiah who would come to make peace between you and God by being willing to die for your sins. To, Jesus says, if you just known in this 
your day, the things that make for your peace. What makes for your peace? It wasn't Jesus militarily overthrowing the Romans. It wasn't dispelling the Roman garrisons from the land that would make peace, not ultimate peace. Jesus understood that the thing, the only thing that would make for peace, eternal, lasting peace between them and Almighty God had nothing to do with military or political, but had everything to do with repentance and faith. Oh, if you just known this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. And there's that spiritual blindness we'll be looking at, talking about. Jesus, as he looked, he says, for the days, in verse 43, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation because you did not recognize the true Messiah. Jesus, through his omniscience, looking into the future, just a matter of three, four decades, he saw clearly. He saw A.D. 70 when the Roman general Titus, under the command of, of, of the, the Caesar was sent into Jerusalem to squelch once and for all the, the Jews who were revolted against the Roman rule. And, and, and historians tell us that the Romans came in and they besieged the, the city of Jerusalem. They closed it in and they built ramps up against the, the walls and they, they began to build barricades around the city of Jerusalem Jesus foresaw that. That's what he was seeing in his, in his divine omniscience. And he saw, he said, oh, if you could just see what lies ahead because of your rejection of the Messiah. And historians tell us that not only did they barricade in the whole city. Josephus, the Jewish historian, says this barricade set in place without a leak from April of that year to September just imagine, cut off, cut off from the rest of the world, cut off from any food supplies coming in, cut off from any commerce or anything that would help to sustain life. People were literally starving to death behind those walls for that time period. And having the city barricaded in, the Roman soldiers were gradually infiltrating the walls of Jerusalem and systematically and brutally, without mercy, without any kindness whatsoever, killing the residents within. Just as the Lord said, men and women and children. As you hold your place there in chapter 19, I couldn't help but be directed to chapter 23. This is looking ahead in the scripture. But when Jesus was condemned to die by crucifixion and, and was marching, making his way to Calvary. And of course, he'd been beaten and scourged and bleeding profusely and carrying this, the cross along. And, and there, you know, Luke records for us how in chapter 23, verse 28, 
how this comes back to play. It says, and a great multitude of the people followed him and the women who also mourned and lamented him. But Jesus turned to them, turned to the women on his way to his own crucifixion, said, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for, the, for yourselves, for your children. For indeed, the days are coming in which they will say, blessed are the barren, the wombs that never bore and the breasts which never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and the hills, cover us. Jesus said, don't weep for me. Weep for any of the women, I guess fathers, the mothers and fathers who have children who will be facing this terrible plight that lies ahead for the city of Jerusalem. And the, the rebellious Jewish nation failed to recognize and receive God's Messiah and they suffered wrath as a result of that. Later, Peter would remind in that wonderful message at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. You may remember after the Holy Spirit had come upon those disciples, Peter included Simon Peter, and Peter's preaching. And he's, he's, he's bringing back to remembrance to the people, the Jews at that time in Acts chapter 2, in that message at, at, at Pentecost when Peter is, is reminding them that Jesus was indeed the Messiah that God had sent. Listen to, to what he says. He says, this, this Jesus, let me, let me take you to the right book. Bifocals are a wonderful thing. They can play tricks on you. Peter is reminding the people here, chapter two of Acts, verse 38, Peter said to them, repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then in chapter 3, still in Jerusalem, right after Pentecost, Peter says in Acts chapter 3, verse 19, Repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus Christ who was preached to you before. And I like the ESV translation of verse 20 because it says that he may send to you the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. In essence, Peter reminding the Jews after Pentecost, you've rejected the authentic Messiah. There was only one Messiah. There is only one Messiah that God is sending to free you from the bondage of your sins. And he is Jesus Christ. And the fatal mistake of the people of that time reflected in Jesus' haunting prediction was their spiritual blindness would cost them dearly. It would cost them dearly because of the judgment of God that awaited them because of their spiritual blindness. And so as we move further in the text now, come to verse 45, I direct your attention to the next point in the message. And that is after Jesus's haunting prediction, we see the Messiah's harsh provocation. Again, seems so out of place for the moment. And yet Jesus is demonstrating to the people he is who he claimed to be, the Son of God, the Messiah, the King of Kings. 
And so now he's in, in, in Jerusalem. This would be Tuesday of the week of the Passion Week. In verse 45, it says, Then he went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in it. Saying in verse 46 to them, It is written, My house is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. In this dramatic twist of emotions, Jesus unleashes his righteous indignation upon the greedy and hypocritical and legalistic religious establishment that was desecrating the very temple of God. Undoubtedly, this was shocking to many who had just joyously celebrated his entrance into Jerusalem, and now they can't figure it out. Here he is attacking the activities of their beloved temple. Here he is berating their highly esteemed religious leaders and their customs. And, their, and so the mood is turning. The multitude that was cheering him and greeting him as the promised Messiah are now becoming silent. They won't become very vocal again until we get toward the end of the week where they will be crying, crucify you, crucify you. Jesus sets out right here in this passage to purge his, his temple. I intentionally inserted his, that possessive pronoun, his temple. And it wasn't the first time. We know that in John's gospel in chapter two, Jesus had already purged the temple earlier in his ministry. This is right after Jesus had performed his first miracle at Cana, turning the water into wine. And he went on into Jerusalem a little later for the Passover, saw the atrocities of commercialism that was in place and, and there in chapter two, and Jesus made a cord, a whip of cords, and began to drive out the money changers and, and the animal sellers and, 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 and you know, Purge the temple. And his disciples seeing the intensity of his, his emotions. They remembered that the psalmist said in Psalm 69 of the Messiah that he would have a zeal for the house of God. That may have been their first clue. This is not your average run-of-the-mill rabbi. He's treating the temple as if it was his because Jesus said at that first purging, he says, how dare you? How dare you do this to my father's house? Who would call God Jehovah Father if it were not the Son of God, Messiah himself? And so now what we're looking at here in, in Luke 19 in verse 46 or 45 and 46, we're looking at the second purge and the second cleansing of the temple, if you will. And it's interesting in the first cleansing that Jesus did in John chapter 2, the, the, the religious leaders, the Jewish leaders, they confronted him because he wasn't as popular at that time. He didn't have the following that he had. And they were puzzled. They said, by what authority are you doing this? Who, who gives you permission? What gives you the right? Where's the authority? Show us some kind of a sign. You'll notice in the second cleansing, they're not asking him for a sign. 
because he's coming into town with a boatload of signs. He's got multitudes of people who are testifying of the divine and miraculous things that he's done. Oh no, there's no confrontation with the authorities at this point. But Jesus sets out and cleansing and exposing and expelling their sinful practices from the temple. I like how Dr. John MacArthur in his commentary on this particular text describes the massive merchandising operation or enterprise that was set up in the court of the Gentiles, which was the outer and, and expansive court of, of the temple complex. You had the, the court of the Gentiles that led into the court of the women. And then as you went towards the inner circle, the court of the men. And then as you go even further in that concentric circle, there was a, the court of the priest. And then, of course, the Holy of Holies. In that outer circumference of the temple complex, set aside for the Gentiles, there was this massive commercialism going on, actually hindering the Gentiles to come to the temple, to, to be able to worship God. In fact, in that day, people called the Gentile court the Bazaar of Annas. Annas was a former high priest, but still wielded a great deal of power and, and influence. And, and I'm sure politically had his son Caiaphas appointed as the, as the current high priest. And so between the two of them, Anderson and Caiaphas, who was the current high priest, they had a lucrative system of trade right there in the temple, in that Gentile court of the temple. Oh man, it was like a Haynes Mall of Jerusalem, but it was more oriented towards the worship, the practice of worship and sacrificial animals in that lucrative system of trade that involved that involved crooked merchants who sold sacrificial animals at, at exorbitant prices. So any economists would say they had the economy. They had the monopoly on that economy. They could charge any price they wanted. They had crooked priests that would inspect the animals that the people raised up on their own and they brought to the temple to, to sacrifice. And the crooked priests would say, nah, it doesn't pass. You got to use one of ours. And they had no choice but to go to the crooked merchants with their inflated prices. Oh, listen, money was being made. Money was being made. But not only the, 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 the merchants, but there were the, the also shady money changers whose responsibility was to convert Roman coins, which wouldn't be, have been accepted for the, the, the temple taxes, converting the Roman coins into the required Jewish and Tyrrhenian currency, and they would charge ridiculous exchange rates. Oh, listen, money, money was being made. And much of the prophets made their way, profits off of Jewish worshipers made their ways into the made their way into the pocketbooks of the high priest. Jesus, as he looks at all of this, and he begins to drive out the money changers, drive out the livestock sellers. He says, it is written, my house, my house is a house of prayer. And in some renditions, a house of prayer for the nations. And what are you doing? You're preventing the very nations, the Gentiles, who believed in Jehovah God with all of this mess 
noisiness and smelliness and, and all. You're preventing them from having access to the very temple where they came to pray to God. He says, and you've made it into a den of thieves. That which is intended for the purpose of serving God. Jesus sets out to purge the temple, but then Jesus confronts their spiritual blindness and their unbelief, which prevented them from recognizing and receiving God's Messiah despite the clear demonstrations of his divine authority, despite the prophecies that he had fulfilled. Listen, they couldn't see. They were blind, just like so many people of that time. They, they, their spiritual blindness prevented them from seeing the true Messiah. Their spiritual blindness prevented them from being able to see the true purpose of the temple. Their, their spiritual blindness prevented them from understanding what true worship of God consisted of. And we're making a mockery of it. And Jesus was confronting that. And he says, you have made my house which is intended to be a house of prayer to a den of thieves Jesus confronts the spiritual blindness and unbelief which hindered them from understanding the true purpose of the temple it was supposed to be as one writer said a place of prayer a place a sanctuary for worship a place of communion with God Now we know something about spiritual blindness. We know that the ultimate source of spiritual blindness that keeps people from truly seeing and understanding and accepting God, His Word, His Spirit, the true ultimate source of spiritual blindness is sin. And there are many people who suffer from that today. And we know the diabolical dispenser of spiritual blindness is none other than the devil himself. That's what the Apostle Paul said. Listen to what he says in 2 Corinthians, there in chapter 4. Paul says, But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God, little g, of this age, speaking of Satan, whose minds the God of this age has blinded who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. Are you listening in Tim's prayer of supplication as you walk through the kingdom concerns? Do you pick up on it on Wednesday evenings when we, we focus on that part of, of praying? For the massive, massive multitude of people Billions of people, billions of people who do not know Jesus Christ certainly don't know him as Lord and Savior. Some have never heard, as Tim pointed out in his prayer, some have never heard the truth of the gospel, the story of the gospel. They're living in absolute spiritual blindness God's Holy Spirit in his divinely inspired word confront the spiritual blindness prevalent in the world today billions of people being deceived to follow false religious systems 
or deceitful cults posing as Christianity or some unbiblical version of Jesus. And yet they will all plunge over the precipice of unbelief into the fiery, unquenchable torment of God's eternal judgment and hell because they're blinded. Just like the people in Jerusalem were blinded, he, they couldn't see, though he was right in front of their eyes, they couldn't see that this was the Messiah that Isaiah had prophesied so clearly, who came to suffer and to die as a sacrificial lamb of God for their sins, and yet they were looking off into the distance and, and, and in some hypothetical way, thinking of some political and military Messiah. They missed it. No wonder Jesus wept. Under conviction, as I was reading this, I asked myself, Charlie, when's the last time that you wept over the spiritual blindness of people that you know? The fact that you could get the news the next day that they passed away and, and never had the opportunity to hear the gospel. God's people's spiritual tear ducts dried up. Are we so self-oriented and consumed in the affairs of our own lives and the things that make us comfortable and pleasurable that we can't even cry anymore? For the people who are walking in spiritual blindness. I'll bring it on in closer as I conclude. I ask you sincerely this morning. Are you walking in some form of spiritual blindness? Or have your spiritual eyes been opened to see the true Messiah? Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, Savior of the world, who died on a cross for our sins, who was buried and on the third day resurrected by the power and the glory of God, is now ascended into heaven at the right hand of God, interceding on our behalf, and will one day come in power and glory again to bring the judgment of God's wrath upon this world. Has Have your spiritual eyes been opened so that you can say, yes, I see him clearly. He is who the scripture prophesied him to be. He is my savior. He is my Lord. I see him clearly. Through the lenses of the scriptures and through the lenses of faith. And the spirit of God. Have you repented of your sins? Have you placed your whole faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone? For your salvation? Do you follow him daily as your Lord and as your master? If you can't answer affirmatively to that, sincerely I offer to you an invitation. If you don't know for, for a certain fact that you have seen clearly who Jesus Christ is and by faith received him into your life to be your Lord and Savior and Master. You come to me as soon as you can. After the service, or call me. We'll set up a time. Pastor Scott, 
Brother Mark, Brother Tim, we'll be happy. We'll be happy to help you. If God is beginning to lift the scales of, of, of sinful rebellion from your eyes and you're beginning to see the truth, let us help you to see him as clearly as we possibly can from the teachings of his holy word. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much that you love us so much that you were willing to send your only son, Jesus Christ, into this world to die a horrible, agonizing death on a cross that should have been ours. We thank you, Lord, for loving us enough that you would reveal so clearly in the pages of your holy, holy, divinely inspired word that there is only one true Messiah, one King of kings and Lord of lords, and his name is Jesus. Lord, I'm sure I speak for those who are here today and online virtually who are Christians to say heartily from our the depths of our heart, thank you, Lord. Thank you for opening our spiritual eyes to be able to see the truth of our sinfulness and our need for Christ and what he did on that cross. And thank you for giving to us the faith to believe and put our full trust in none other than Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And thank you, Lord, for salvation and the assurance of eternal life in heaven with you. Lord, we pray. We pray for anyone that does not have that same confidence and assurance. That, Lord, if it's your will, if you've chosen them to be a part of your eternal family, that by your spiritual draw them, draw them to Jesus and use us as faithful, compassionate, courageous witnesses to show them how. We commit that to you, Lord. We trust it to you and we thank you for what you'll do to bring glory to yourself. This we ask in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.